Okay, let's jibeli. Jo jebote. This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your distiller, Peter Korchnak. The stereotype of the former Yugoslavia, the Balkans, is that of fragmentation and conflict. But there's a lot that people in the Balkans have in common. They like to argue who did this or that first, or whose song it is anyway. They remember Yugoslavia, in one way or another. They eat burek. And they, we, all drink rakia. Rakia is the quintessential spirit of the Balkans. If you were weaned on Rakia, if you got married with Rakia, if you toast anything with Rakia, you're from the Balkans. Or, as the old meme went, Rakia connecting people. Rakia is in people's blood, it's in their soul, but it's more than a spirit, more than a spirit. When I hear that old glass they used to clink, more than a spirit, I begin dreaming, more than a spirit. Till I see the bottle empty away, I see my Rakia bottle emptying away. On this show, we've made sarma, we've enjoyed burek, and now it's time to wash it down. So, in this, the third annual culinary episode, we'll talk and distill and drink rakia. But before we get the party started, I want to raise a glass to the newest members of the Remembering Yugoslavia community of supporters. Thank you Kaz, Erwin, Frank and Katarina for your contributions. The show must flow on and you guys make it happen. And, like your fellow contributors, you can listen to the extended version of this episode and all other extended and bonus episodes. If you are listening, join the table with Kaz, Erwin, Frank, Katarina and other generous supporters. Help keep Remembering Yugoslavia's glass full. Go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate or follow the Nifty support link in your podcast listening app and get a round in. What do we drink when we drink rakia? Rakia is a strong spirit distilled from fermented juice of fruits. Article 6 of the Serbian law on rakia and other alcoholic beverages defines rakia as an alcoholic beverage produced by distilling fermented crushed fruit, pressed fruit, pomace or fruit mark, grapes, edible forest fruits and other raw materials of agricultural origin with a minimal ethanol content of 15% by volume and with preserved specific sensory properties derived from the raw material from which it was produced. The most common type of this brandy by far is plum, but rakia is also made from grapes, pears, apples, apricots, peaches, cherries, sour cherries, figs, raspberries. My favorite is quince. Rakia distillers have also been known to use pineapples, bananas, oranges and mangoes as well as prunes and raisins. Rakia is an umbrella word for all fruit distilled spirits. In Serbia, the term rakia is synonymous with plum brandy or šljovica, šljovic, the most common kind made and sold there. In other areas of the Balkans too, rakia is distilled from the most prevalent local fruit. Similarly, each kind of rakia has its own name depending on the fruit it derives from. And often, let's say when you order at a bar, the name of the rakia is shortened to its fruit. Dunjevača or dunja is quince rakia. Lozovača or loza is grape rakia, but grape pomes rakia is called komovica. Kajsijevača or kajsija for apricot rakia. Jabukovača for apple rakia. Smokvovača for fig rakia. Trešnjevača for cherry rakia. Orhovača is walnut rakia. Pelinkovac is made with wormwood or pelin. Pear rakia is called Kruškovača or Viljamovka after the Williams or Bartlett varietal. Medica, also known as Medovača or Medenica, is made with honey. Travarica is made from grass and herbs. Breskovača, Dudovača, Komadara. There's seemingly no end to it. If it talks like a fruit, looks like a fruit, tastes like a fruit and grows like a fruit, then it's probably distilled into rakia. After distillation, some producers add more flavor to their rakia by adding herbs, honey, walnuts, even coffee. I've had Kerab rakia in Zagreb, and the Dubrovnik specialty Aniseta is anise-flavored. Alcohol content of rakia ranges from as little as 15% to upwards of 50% among moonshine. Most common types are 30 to 40. 
After distillation, rakia is left to age, mostly in oak barrels. As with whiskey, the more the better. 6 to 12 months is common. Old plum rakia is aged for 2 to 5 years, very old shlivovica for more than 6. The word most commonly used for rakia in English, brandy, actually comes from the German brandwein, literally burnt wine or brandy wine. The word schnapps is also used. I'll use rakia and brandy interchangeably. Rakia production and consumption spans the entire Balkans. Let's start with Serbia, where rakia is the national drink. I've heard rakia described as the quintessence of being Serbian. Serbia produces some 50 million liters of spirits, or 7 plus liters per capita, most of which is rakia. The WHO statistics show that spirits in Serbia comprise about a quarter of all alcohol consumed. In Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's about 13%, but in Montenegro, it's 44%. In 2019, Serbs consume 2.4 liters of strong alcoholic drinks per capita. By contrast, Croatia consumes less than half of that, Bosnia and Herzegovina about a third, but Montenegro about 3.2 liters. The joke is that the most popular wine in Serbia is rakia. A survey of Serbian distillers, many of whom use multiple fruits to make different rakias, found that 84% distilled plums, 50% distilled grapes, about 45% distilled apples, pears and quinces, and 36% apricots. Croatia is a wine country, but rakia is the most popular spirit, often flavored. Plum, pear, and grape are probably the most common. In the wine-producing Dalmatia, rakia is made from grapes and wine-making leftovers like pressed grape stalks and pulp, or pomis. The region, particularly the islands, is known for travarica, a mild-tasting spirit made from herbs. In Zagreb, Viljamovka and travarica seem to be the most popular. Croatia has EU-protected geographical indication of six rakia products, two plum and one each cherry, herb, wormwood, and grape rakias. A recent survey of rakia makers on the Adriatic Islands found that 114 species of plants from 38 botanical families were involved in the making of rakia. Almost half of these were wild plants, and all but one, coffee, grew locally. Plums were used rarely, and the strawberry tree ceased to be used in the 1960s. The most common ingredients used in myriad of combinations included fennel, myrtle, sage, rue, juniper, carob, walnut, lemon, bitter orange, bay, rosemary, rose, mint, as well as St. John's wort, wild thyme, catmint, marjoram, curry plant, and lavender. Wormwood is used for pelinkovats, a dark bitter digestif. A few rakias are endemic on the islands. Rakia flavored with the nearly extinct silky wormwood is made on cress. On Vis, distillers use grey rock rose and Italian buckthorn, and on Brac, felty germander and savory. Dubrovnik is known for using bitter orange, where it was introduced in the 10th century, and anise, and Korčula for lemon verbena, brought here by sailors from South America. The Istrian peninsula is famous for making honey brandy. The base is grape or pomace, and honey is added later in the process, sometimes with further additions like coriander, lemon zest, or propolis. Medica typically ranges between 15 and 25% ABV. Istria, particularly the town of Hum, is also known for producing biska, a mistletoe-infused brandy. Who loves rakia? Like the first time, first time. When I saw you like the first time, first time. 
first time when create you like the first time That was Luboina from Macedonia with the song Rakia. As all the other songs you'll hear on today's show, I've played it with the kind permission of the band. Give them some love on social media and buy their music. All the links are in the episode notes at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. You can hear this and all the songs in full in the extended episode, available to supporters on Patreon and elsewhere. Some Balkan sayings and proverbs indeed warn against the negative effects of Rakia. Rakia ate him up and he loves Rakia more than his own mother are just a couple of ways to describe alcoholics. Wine gets people married, Rakia gets them to divorce. Wine is merry, Rakia is quarrelsome. Wine is divine, Rakia devilish. I can easily imagine these to have been made up by winemakers feeling threatened by Rakia's competition. Either way, it seems Rakia drinkers have strong stomachs. One recent study showed that, quote, in Serbia, the impact of alcohol abuse on life expectancy does not appear to be significant. The cultural pattern of alcohol consumption does not confirm that this mortality factor represents a significant burden amongst the general Serbian population. That pattern is this. Rakia is almost always sipped, usually from a small bulb-shaped shot glass, Chokancic, not downed. You can certainly get drunk and die from Rakia, but those aren't the main goals of drinking it. The good people of the Balkans drink rakia often, but in smaller amounts, mostly at mealtimes, as a toast or as part of rituals. Muyo catches a goldfish. What of this goldfish do you wish, says the fish. I will grant you three wishes. Muyo says, I want all the land to be meze, done. And all the water to be rakia, done. And what is your last wish, the goldfish says. Muyo thinks on it and replies, a liter of rakia. Reporting on her fieldwork in the Shumadia region, the Serbian heartland, in the 1950s, anthropologist Barbara Kurovsky-Helpern wrote that people imbue rakia with attributes that augment a sense of community and collectivity. The ritual sharing of rakia is socially cohesive and is instrumental in maintaining identity. Toasting with rakia is part of everyday life. You toast when you visit and maybe when you depart. A shot of rakia is a mark of hospitality, a welcome into the circle, an essence that binds. You toast at the start of a big meeting you're hosting, particularly for foreign guests. The footage of the Dutch UN troops commander Tom Karamans drinking rakia near Srebrenica with the future war criminal Ratko Mladic is one of the most haunting things you'll ever see. Slobodan Milosevic was known for hosting foreign politicians and journalists with rakia. You toast when you conclude an agreement or seal a contract. You toast when you start and when you end the pig slaughter and several times throughout. One old custom has a bottle of rakia suspended from each building under construction. It gets consumed when the building is finished as a kind of consecration. Barn raising, well digging, car or tractor or any other major purchase. After ruinous weather, bad harvest, deadly illness and other misfortunes, villagers would drink to fate and life and better luck next time. The range of occasions for a rakia toast is endless. Rakia marks and binds these minor life rituals. Toasting with rakia is a ritual closure. Rakia features in many customs throughout the life cycle. As a man named Bogdan told Kerovsky Halpern, so it goes with us Serbs. With rakia we are born, with rakia we marry and with rakia we bury. 
Rakia is usually among the gifts people bring to congratulate on the birth of a child. The newborn and parents are then toasted with wishes for a long and happy life. There is this tradition where if a child is born, I think specifically a boy, then a bottle of rakia is buried in the garden. And uh, this bottle remains buried until the son is ready to get married. And then the bottle is dug up and drank for the marriage. Iskra Vukšić is an interdisciplinary artist and writer from Šibenik and Amsterdam. She and her collaborator, Jekaterina Volkova, spoke with me about their project exploring rakia traditions in the area of Bosnia and Herzegovina between Dubrovnik and Trebinje. That's coming up later in the show. The idea in this anecdote was that a lot of these bottles, they have gotten lost. So maybe now we can say that the young people have uh, migrated to other countries and they did not get married on the land of their parents and the bottle was never dug up. Or the bottle was simply lost because people forgot where they had buried it in the garden and so on. I find it almost mythological that there might be a land with a lot of buried bottles in the garden waiting for these children to get married. The less mythical version of the custom in Serbia has a father, on the day his first male child is born, put aside a 50-liter barrel of Slyovic to be consumed on the boy's wedding day. I want to go to that wedding. Rakia toast accompanied the contractual and betrothal procedures, observed Kurovsky Halpern. The groom's father was the Rakia man, or the Buklia, pouring shots to villagers as he invited them to the wedding. At the wedding feast itself, Rakia resumes its ritual place as co-host, overseeing an atmosphere of merriment and hospitality, wrote the anthropologist. Rakia is also part of death rituals. Indeed, hospitality does not end with death. When people gather at the home of the deceased, among other things, they are served rakia. People drink shots at the funeral, some directly on the grave, sometimes as a display of conspicuous consumption. You can't have a funeral without rakia, as one villager told the anthropologist Kurovsky Halpern. With us, you can't tell who's been drinking and who's been crying. Rakia is what's served to honor the dearly departed. People forego the toasting, cheersing, and glass clinking, and spill a little bit of the drink on the ground for the deceased soul. In Macedonia too, as recounted by George Ford in 1983, when people gather at the bedside of the deceased, one part of the rakiashad is spilled on the ground, and the rest they drink zadusha for the spirit of the deceased. At the funeral itself too, rakia zadusha is part of the ceremony. Additionally, during the thrice-yearly public ceremony honoring all the dead called the Zadushnica in February, June, and November, rakia is part of the menu that is shared among the people gathered at family plots and the rest of the cemetery. Okay, so touring with bands in the Balkans, as you probably even Slovakia, I've seen them, uh, you know, the um, Umrlica, I don't know what you would call that in... in, in yeah, a, a death, like a death notice or death a, notice, yeah, yeah. funeral notice, death notice. They're all over the place, especially in smaller villages. That's Bill Gold, the founder of Yebigarakia, a brand they imported from Serbia to the US and rebranded for the American market. Gold is a music producer, notably with his own indie label Cool Arrow Records, which included among its acts the Balkan stars Kulturshock from Seattle and Dubiaza Collective from Zenica and Sarajevo. You may better recognize him as the basis for the band Faith No More. He spoke with me from his home in San Francisco. The Yebiga Rakia label features black stroke around a white rectangle in the middle of which is a black and white photo of a baba, an old woman wearing black morning clothes, tipping a glass of rakia, underneath which is the name of the beverage. The design resembles death notices you find on bulletin boards, walls, poster columns, even trees around the Balkans, announcing the death of the person on it and particulars of their funeral or commemoration. And where a cross or a crescent or a star would be is the logo, a stylized rakia glass. To me, they just look so punk, man. It'd be somebody's face and a flyer. And I was like, this looks like some like badass musician, you know, like and they all had really different faces. And I would always laugh, like, look at that. And people would, you know, it's normal for them. They're like, what is the matter yep. with you? Why are you obsessed with these 
yeah. obituaries. And I was like, if I ever, ever do a, a Rakia, this is going to be the bottle. You know, this is going to be the label on the bottle. Yeah. And right. then I was like, you know, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to call it Yebiga. And uh, it was just like, you know, like a joke, you know, but it really, you know, when I decided, when I came back from Bulgaria to Serbia, and I, I'm telling people like, this is what I want to do. And I had a mock-up, you know, it kind of looked like our bottle now. And they would, people would laugh. And I'm like, we have you to. have to. Yeah, we have, you have to do have this. To. Yep. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. Yebiga. Y-E-B-I-G-A is the Americanized spelling of the Serbo-Croatian word and in literal translation means fuck it. Yebiga, as one word, is a universal response to pretty much anything, reflecting that Balkan spirit of fatalism and resignation in the face of facts you cannot change. Yebiga, what are you going to do? Yebiga, dang it. Yebiga, it's done, life goes on. Yebiga, enough said. In the extended episode, Gold tells the story of the actual Baba on the label, and a lot more. The twist, Baba in morning clothes can be used as a visual metaphor for death. For example, in the movie Who's That Singing Over There, a Baba, who doesn't say a word and no one even acknowledges her presence at the back of the bus, represents death and tragedy, and she indeed serves as foreshadowing. It's very metal, you know, and it's very, you know. <laughs> yes, very metal. And, 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 but it's true to, to the region, you know, like this fruit is. So it has to be, it has to have that the Black Sabbath vibe, but it has to be that from there, you know. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I think that there's a real thing, I mean, with, with Eastern Europe in general, but but especially in, in Serbia and the Balkans. Um, I wouldn't say it's a disrespect that Americans have, but it's a lack of knowledge. And uh, lack of taking seriously, like they think Serbia, Siberia, you know, they get mixed up. They don't really, it's not really on their radar. And I wanted something that people are going to respect, you know, something maybe they might be a little afraid of, you know, and uh, Bob is doing an amazing job with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Births, weddings, deaths. As a ritual accompaniment, Rakia is also part of holidays. Karoski Halpern reported that on Easter, villagers would gather outside the church after service and break fast exchanging food and Rakia. Quote, the exchange of rakia clearly mediates the sense of community more than the group participation in the formal church service. During Slava, the celebration of a family's patron saint in Serbia, rakia flows in numerous toasts. Glasses must never be empty. The flow of brandy and the abundance of food represents effective sacrifice with which the prosperity of the household is assured. End quote. Rakia also centers the life of the singer of SARS, the Serbian acronym for Satriani's freshly amputated hand. Drunk and angry, he goes on the road. But there's no rakia in the West, the worst punishment, because there is no beverage like it in the world. It keeps him going, it gives him strength, it is his happiness and sadness. He loves to drink it and begs you to find it for him, or he'll beat you up. Now 
Sveže amputirana ruka Satriania from Belgrade with Rakia. By their music. By the way, the video for the song was filmed at Kafana Korčagin, a Yugo-themed Serbian restaurant. Mujo goes to the doctor. I can't prove to my son that Rakia is bad for you. Can you help? The doctor orders the son to be brought in. He sets two glasses in front of him, and one he fills with water, the other with Rakia. Then he puts a worm in each. The worm in the water glass squirms, the worm in the Rakia glass dies instantly. What's your conclusion from this? And little Mujo says, if you drink rakia, you have no worms. I am drinking um, Baba Olga's Medna Travarica. The artist is Kravukšić again. Uh, Baba Olga was one of the people that we interviewed for the Javnatajna project. She lives in Velichani, in Popovo Polje, in Herzegovina, in Bosnia Herzegovina. And I would say she, yeah, she is a legend. So it was very uh, exciting to meet her. And uh, it's quite common practice, uh, Peter, to uh, have a rakia in the morning for health and definitely recommended by Baba Olga for digestion or to sleep that one more hour that you need or uh, generally for health. So she really sees it as medicine. And what I am drinking is Medna Travarica, which means uh, honey travarica, honey, honey herbal drink, slightly less strong than normal rakia. I am drinking... Also, honey drink, uh, Medenica, which I brought this summer from Croatia. And uh, it is slightly less strong, and that's 29% rather than 40 of 39. Yekaterina Volkova is an artist and graphic designer from Yekaterinburg, Russia. She speaks about the Russian experience in the extended episode. Vukšić and Volkova met in graduate school in Amsterdam and have been collaborating since. When we spoke last October, each of us drank rakia. I poured myself a glass of Yebiga Bella from the bottle Gold had kindly sent me. It was morning of my time and the rakia served both as an energy drink and a digestion aid. Indeed, rakia is also medicine. As one meme put it, I don't know what the illness is, but rakia is the cure. Some people say, drink some rakia and you'll feel better. A Serbian proverb says it best. You don't need another cure, rakia is the pharmacy and the good god can wait. Some rakias are used as digestives, including rue, walnut and wormwood. That's your palinkovats. Rakia is a disinfectant for scratches and wounds. Rue Travarica is used to prevent the evil eye. In an article on Montenegrin manners and customs published in 1909, anthropologist Edith Durham recounted two medicinal uses of rakia. Medicine was and is largely practiced by wise women. Every disease, they say, has its plant. Most of the remedies are herbal. The following, I am told, is excellent for pneumonia. Take a dried gold bladder of a pig and pound it up. 
mix it with gunpowder and drink it in strong rakia. This is very powerful, I was told by a man whose life, so he said, had been saved by it. And second, native surgeons have a great local reputation for dressing wounds and setting bones. The traditional way of dressing a wound is remarkably antiseptic. It was of no account to be washed with water, but cleaned out several times with strong wine or rakia. Durham recounts a conversation with a war veteran of the Battle of Vuchidol in 1876, who was shot through the lungs and taken to a Russian field hospital where things went from bad to worse, the veteran told her. The Russian doctor then said he must cut another hole in me between two ribs. I had two holes already, so I thought it was very stupid. I knew I would die if I had another hole in me. I asked the nurse to tell my people to save me. They came in the night and carried me away. I was so thin my wife carried me like a baby. They poured a rakia in my wound. It made me cough most dreadfully and some of it ran out of the other side. They put the bandages on and poured a rakia into me very often. The wound got well and in a year I was strong." End quote. Durham again. He is an old man now and as hard as nails. He has drunk rakia ever since and no wine. It is firmly believed that whichever you are dressed with, wine or rakia, you must drink for the rest of your life. In Sanjak, a region in southwest Serbia, locals would drink rakia to relieve fever, sore throat, cold and diarrhea, apply rakia topically on wounds, toothaches, headaches and eye inflammations, they would soak a piece of cloth with it and place it on the chest for cough, and they would heat it up and inhale the fumes for sinus ailments. Talk to anyone in the Balkans and they'll inevitably have a story of their mother or grandmother using rakia as a cure. Pour it on a cut or scrape to disinfect it, mix it with honey or garlic for cough syrup, soak it in cloths to relieve fever or toothache or stiff neck. Drink a shot, or even a half, in the morning for immunity, digestion, and general well-being. I remember my mother recently tried drinking a half shot of Moonshine Slivovitz first thing in the morning, and her sleep and digestion improved considerably, until the supply ran out. Shumadiski chai, Shumadia tea, named for the region it comes from, is a toddy made with rakia and honey that's used as a warming beverage and relief for colds and coughs. Pacify teething infants with a gentle rakia rub. Swish a shot on an aching tooth. Cool an insect bite itch. Mix it with cooked nettles to purify your blood in spring. Heat it and infuse it with salt to induce abortion. Drink a lot of it to relieve birthing pain. Numb your grief. Massage into affected areas to ease your rheumatism or back pain or sore muscles or to reduce swelling. Sip it with parsley to fix a UTI. Recipes go on and on and on. Rakia is also a good cleaning agent and disinfectant. It removes laundry stains, it cleans windows and glassware, it used to disinfect diapers and clean kerosene lamps as well as surfaces during pandemics. Because of its mood-altering properties, Rakia is also said to induce song. Writing about Sevdalinka songs for the Congress of Bosniaks of North America, Ivan Lovrenovich claims that, quote, serious connoisseurs and aficionados know full well that there is no true song without company and without Rakia made by a craftsman's hand. That which smells of the plum, or more precisely the velvety blue dew shrouding the ripe fruit at dawn, pours benevolently through the stomach and the limbs, catches slowly and holds long, and fills the soul with a noble and disconsolate melancholy, and draws forth a song. <laughs> Hey, ne znam zašto možda srce znam u životu mome. Još si jedina Ne znam zašto Ludo srce znam 
Rakia flowed all night through the veins of this guy who drinks because of you. Verses flowed that night when another man's best man took you away in tears. Thus laments Peja Vujic in Teklaje Rakia, by his music. Hasso walks into a pub and orders five shots of Rakia. He drinks them and says to the barkeep, four Rakias. Drinks them again, says, give me three Rakias. Drinks those as well, then the two, and then finally, when a single shot of Rakia stands before him, he says, upičku materinu, the less I drink, the drunker I get. Where does Rakia come from? This is a matter of some dispute across the Balkans. Yes, Rakia unites people, but it also drives them apart. Bulgarians and Serbs in particular dispute being Rakia's ground zero. Until recently, evidence pointed to Rakia first having been made in today's Serbia in the 14th century. In the early 2010s, archaeologists discovered distillation vessels dating back to the 11th century in the south of today's Bulgaria, near the Greek border. Bulgaria now boasts the highest number of Rakia varieties registered as protected geographical indication products. The word itself comes from the Turkish raki, which is an anise-flavored spirit. This would suggest rakia came to the Balkans from the Ottoman Empire. Before the Ottoman conquest, the word rakia, as well as the word for the distilling vessel, kazan, did not appear in the Serbian language. The Ottomans also introduced apricots and peaches to the region, and in the 16th century also kafana, a type of tavern. Raki is in turn of Arabic origin, stemming from arak, meaning sweat or perspiration, which describes distillation itself. Arak is also a grape-based anise-flavored beverage. Arabs are probably the first to distill spirits, or alcohol, in the 9th century, having adopted distillation from Egypt, where monks had invented it in the 6th century. Distillation was also invented in China, and some claim it was Armenians who were the first to distill spirits. There's evidence that distillation also came to the Balkans from the West, specifically the Republic of Venice. The first evidence of distilling in Europe comes from Sicily in the 11th century, when the island belonged to the Caliph of Cairo. Early Italians were distilling spirits from the 14th century, and spread the technology north and eastward. The technique entered the western parts of the Balkans through the Venetian and other ports along the Adriatic coast, including with traveling alchemists and pharmacists and priests and monks. I want to think both stories are correct, and that Rakia is just another example of how both East and West came together in and influenced the Balkans in between. As for plums, Serbian sources say plums were brought to Serbia in the 4th century BC from Greece. The Požegača plum, known as Majarka, meaning Hungarian, indicated it was probably introduced to the Balkans from Hungary. Large plum orchards had been recorded in the very first Ottoman survey of Bosnia already in the late 1400s. University of Belgrade historian Jelena Mrgic has traced the roots of rakia production in Ottoman Serbia and Bosnia to the Little Ice Age in the late 16th century. Cooler and wetter climate in Ottoman Bosnia led to harvest failures which in turn led farmers to lasting agricultural shifts, a switch to different crops, pig rearing and trade. Among other crops, finicky, heat-loving grapes gave way to more resistant plums. Grape as a crop requires relatively dry and sunny weather and is quite demanding in terms of labor. Prunus domestica, the European plum on the other hand, is better capable of surviving weather changes including less sun slash warmth and more rain. It can withstand cold better and survive in higher altitudes, it has greater nutritional value, about three times that of grape, and it requires less money and labor to grow and process. Correspondingly, viticulture diminished in favor of brandy distilling. 
Brandy is also two to three times as strong in terms of alcohol content than wine at much smaller volumes. This makes it not only more potent, but also longer lasting and easier and safer for long distance transport. And let's not forget those medicinal uses. The first reference of trade in Rakia in the North Central Balkans is from the late 16th century. By the 17th century, distilling and drinking of Rakia in the Northern Balkans was widespread. By the 19th century, Rakia replaced wine as the most popular beverage in the region. Similar changes took place in the rest of Europe where spirits experienced an ascendance. The town of Brčko in the north of today's Bosnia and Herzegovina became the center for plum and prune exports by the mid-19th century, when it was officially estimated that plums represented 80% of all the fruit grown in the country. At first glance, the spread of a strong spirit in a Muslim-dominated land may seem curious. While Muslims in Bosnia observed Sharia prohibitions on drinking wine, according to taxation records, Rakia was not only taxed less than wine, while still providing needed revenue to the state, it did not seem to be prohibited. It was also easier to conceal illegal production and sales. Another reason may have been the view that since brandy went through fire during production, it was cleansed and could not be forbidden. And finally, alcohol was okay to use for medicinal purposes. All that said, Murgic, the historian, also adds that famines, epidemics, economic mismanagement and wars acted as additional hardship-generating factors in the shift to plum-growing and rakia distilling. It was from Brčko that trade in plum products expanded eastward to Serbia. Bosnians traveled across and migrated to Serbia in the second half of the 19th century, helping farmers to dry their plums for prunes. Then plum growers and rakia makers migrated to and settled in Serbia. The first to export prunes from Serbia was the company Krsmanovic Paranos, the veterans of Brčko's plum industry. The company also promoted the planting of the Požegača plum varietal. Ever hungry for plum inputs, the company would later provide loans and credit to plum farmers. Plum merchants like this one helped establish banking in Serbia. Plums spread rapidly throughout Serbia, helping to cultivate hillsides without arable land. Thanks to climatic and soil conditions, plums thrived only in certain areas. The so-called Plum Belt of Serbia extended from the Bosnian border in the west to River Sava in the north to River Morava in the east, enclosing all of Šumadija. To this day, the largest plum-producing areas are around Valjevo, Kraljevo, Kragujevac, Osačina and Prokuple. A Serbian saying has it that the best place to build a house is where a plum tree grows the best. Most of the plums were processed in Turakia. Nearly 21,000 kazans or stills existed in Serbia in 1867. Almost all of the rakia was consumed by the farmers themselves or within their circles. Even though many farmers had their own stills, there was in villages also a distilling specialist called Kazanjia who would make the rounds in late fall to assist with processing fermented plum mash. He'd get paid in product and would end up having a lot of extra rakia, which he'd then resell to households who ran out of their own. Some rakia did get sold within Serbia and some even got exported, almost exclusively to Ottoman Turkey. The limitation was in part due to the trade being dominated by wine merchants who weren't interested in diversifying. Though they could make more money off of it per ton of plums than from other plum products, farmers could not make a living out of rakia alone. Instead, prunes and later pekmes, plum jam, drove a boom in plum exports in the late 19th century, so that by the turn of the 20th century, Serbia was the world's main exporter of prunes. A boon to this trade was the railway link between Kragujevac and Budapest in 1884. The Hungarians were mostly buying cheap plum jam for sale to the working class. Another portion of the harvest was exported raw for processing into palinka, which is the Hungarian word for rakia. Hungary quickly became Serbian plum industry's main market. By the early 20th century, plum products amounted to some 20% of Serbia's total exports, double that in the plum belt itself. 36% was sold as prunes, 20% as rakia, 27% was consumed within the farm, both fresh and as rakia. The first registered patent in Serbia for a rakia-making machine dates to December 1909. Circus Vistinski Magia i svetla Šareni 
Srekni lica sjajni kostini A na kraj od tažni klovnovi Tažen su mi jaz isto koni Na kraj meni važno koj bil kriv Veznea su kuća koja nema pokriv Veznea jas ne That was Dario Pankowski from Macedonia drinking rakia as medicine to ease the pain and forget his lover. The only therapy for a broken heart is rakia, Dario sings. Buy his music. Again, all the links are at remembringyugoslavia.com slash podcast and full songs on Patreon. The interwar period saw an explosion of commercial rakia making and drinking in the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. This was also the period when major temperance and sobriety organizations were established. During the American Prohibition, rakia distilling peasants from Borča across the Danube from Belgrade made a living in the U.S. as consultants and assistants to bootleggers. The influence went the other way too, when Yugoslav illustrators borrowed the character of Mickey Mouse to make their own, Mika Mish, who traveled around the world and had adventures, including distilling rakia and dressing soldiers' wounds with rakia. World War II devastated rakia production. Five years after the war, rakia production barely reached half of pre-war numbers. Yugoslavia's communist government nationalized the surviving alcohol producers and industrialized the production of rakia. A number of new companies were established as well. In Zadar, Croatia, Maraska was established in 1946. It became best known for its maraschino cherry liqueur, which had a centuries-long tradition in the area. Rubin and Kruševac originated in 1955 and is best known for vinyak, a brandy similar to konjak. The industrial giant Takovo was established in 1959 in Gornji Milanovac, Serbia, where it produced a range of confectionery and fruit products and beverages, including rakia. Priyadorčanka was established in 1972 in its namesake town in northern Bosnia and Herzegovina. Socialism was indeed the era of big rakia. Nevertheless, as one Serbian rakia expert and promoter told the BBC, in the era of socialist Yugoslavia there were several strong companies that produced brandy and the price-quality ratio of the brandy on store shelves was solid. Meanwhile, people in villages continued growing plums and making moonshine. In a 1950s study, Joel Halpern describes plum growing in the Shumadian village of Orashats Dasli. Neat plum orchards, now rows of bare branch trees, now obscuring the cottages in clouds of pink-white petals, now hung with purple fruit, surround each homestead. Whole families would pick plums and process them into rakia. Many farmers also made pekmes and prunes. Residue was fed to the pigs. There's a funny anecdote about Tito and rakia. In June 1961, President Tito was visiting Mount Jastrebac near Kruševac in central Serbia. In the middle of the night, unbeknownst to his security detail, he snuck out of his motel room and visited with the reception staff. He spotted a flask and asked what it was. Rakia, comrade Tito, said the guard. Tito took a few sips and went back to his room. Now the Secret Service reacted. They confiscated the bottle, fearing it might be poison, and questioned the tipsy staff who said, Comrade Tito drank, so we drank too. But Tito may have simply been adjusting his taste to the audience. A Time magazine reporter in 1954 noted that at an annual dinner of foreign correspondents in Belgrade, the 62-year-old dictator rejected native rakia in favor of three martinis. 
When American businessmen and managers toured the Zastava car-making factory in the 1980s to determine whether they could import the Yugo car to the US, they were horrified not just by the outdated production methods, but also by the fact that workers smoked cigarettes and drank Slivovitz on the job, as early as 8am. One visitor in the winter recalled asking a worker why he drank. I'm cold, so I drink to warm up, the worker said. But then he got to ask the same worker the same question in the spring, when it was warm outside, and the worker laughed and said, it helps me to cool off. This kept me alive many a long winter night when I was with the partisans in Yugoslavia. <laughs> I remember the monks came from their island and carried our wounded back to the monastery, and that was the first time I tasted the brandy of St. Solaire. It was like a drink from the Holy Grail. A few years after he made Who's That Singing Over There, Slobodan Shian directed the comedy The Secret of a Monastery Rakia. An American businessman wants to restore a monastery known for making supposedly magical rakia. And legend has it that their monastic brandy, when ignited, burned in the shape of an angel. But all the silent monks are gone, so he invites any survivors to make themselves known and be paid for their expertise. Needless to say, many other characters answer the ad. Socialist Yugoslavia struggled with alcoholism. Physicians warned that alcoholism represented one of the most difficult problems of contemporary social medicine, and the single most significant national problem facing Yugoslavia. Alcoholism was said to hamper worker productivity, threaten family structures, increase criminal behaviors, and degrade its military defense preparedness. Year after year, Yugoslavs were said to be drinking more and at earlier and earlier ages, and excessive drinking spread to previously low-drinking populations of women and Muslims. Some saw this as the result of modernization, with rural people struggling to adapt to urban life. Others saw the opposite, where cultural traditions and lack of education in rural areas drove people to continue to drink homemade spirits. Growing incomes helped more people to afford the extra expense of booze, and industrial production of alcohol drove prices down. Either way, alcoholism was a social illness. As every regime since the Habsburgs, Yugoslav communists fought against alcoholism. Some proposed a mass culling of plum trees to eliminate the source of Šljivica, others pushed propaganda campaigns featuring films, media articles and trainings. The Yugoslavs also developed unique treatment and rehabilitation methods, including the education and therapeutic community-based hoodling method, which continues to be used around the world today, and social clubs for recovering alcoholics. But while alcoholism was the 17th most commonly treated medical problem in 1969, by the mid-1980s it was the 7th, and one in seven patients in Yugoslav psychiatric hospitals was diagnosed with alcoholism. Come travel with me in a country that no longer exists. This spring, summer and fall, I'll be leading tours across the former Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia from the cradle to the grave is a 12-day journey across the history, present and future of the disappeared country. Through three capitals and many stops along the way, we will trace Yugoslavia's history from its birth to its resting place and investigate the ways it remains alive today. Choose from one of seven tour dates in April, May, August, September and October. Tito, Life and Legacy is a 10-day ride through the life, accomplishments and memory of Socialist Yugoslavia's leader. We will follow Tito's life in places where he was born and died, where he fought and worked, where he partied and hunted, where he succeeded and also where he failed. The Marshal's life will unfold against the backdrop of the history of Yugoslavia. And we will explore what he means to people in the disappeared country today. Only one date is available to coincide with Tito's birthday and the Day of Youth commemoration in Kumrovets. Everywhere we go in each tour, guest guides and expert speakers will highlight more fascinating stories. Learn more and book at rememberingyugoslavia.com tours. See you in Yugoslavia.
In the 1990s, many state enterprises went bankrupt or were privatized, and rakia production suffered. In addition, many private distillers were convinced that rakia was better than those foreign concoctions like scotch or cognac, and thus convinced of the drink's inherent superiority, failed to invest in marketing. The gray and black market filled the void. And a rocker got inspired. We were in Berlin when the wall came down. We played that night, so that's when we were really kind of in our ascendancy. Bill Gold, the Rocky American again. And uh, very soon afterwards, pretty much all of Eastern Europe, the governments fell and that world opened up for touring. So to me, being an American and being sheltered from that part of the world, it was really like where I wanted to go and what I wanted to see. And, and I just got deeper and deeper. And the more I got into that area, the more I wanted to know and... and Gold told Food and Wine magazine that he first tried Rakia in May 1992 at the Faith No More concert in Budapest, when some bottles Serbian fans brought to the show ended up backstage. Fast forward 30 years later, I just really love Rakia. I've been at somebody's house that I had just an amazing Rakia, and uh, I've been going, I was doing things like going out to Serbia just basically to get Rakia and bring some good stuff home because it just, in the States, it just doesn't exist. It's this uh, Slivovica that's really made in factories, you know cheap stuff, nothing like I can get out there. And I would get, you know, fill my suitcase full of bottles and then, you know, it last me a week or something. And then till the next time, right? Maybe it's a midlife crisis, but Gold really does care a lot about Rakia. You could almost say he wants it all, but he can't have it. Throughout its history, from the kingdom to the Socialist Federation, Yugoslavia was a top three plum producing country in the world. In 2017, Serbia was number four, but slipping in the rankings, most recently overtaking by the United States, where aging boomers are in ever-graded need of prunes. Dips and doodles aside, plum production in Serbia is seeing a downtrend over the years, about 14% in the past decade. More than half of all fruit orchards in Serbia are plum, but tree numbers are down by a quarter since Tito died. The trend seems to be a continuation from the socialist period. There were times when plum was the only Serbian export product, then one of the best-selling export products, and nowadays Serbian plum exports are so low as to be irrelevant in economic terms. The main problems are outdated cultivation methods, limited by farm size, and disease, which has wiped out the Požegača varietal. Serbia and other rakia-making regions in the Balkans are also experiencing aging and depopulation. Villagers age and with them dies out the rakia-making craft. Younger people leave villages for cities, never to return. Serbs and Bosnians and Croats are leaving their countries in droves. Even in Serbia, the depopulation of the rural areas is a real thing. Uh, Even in the farm, you know, it's hard to get people to help you pick plums. I mean, there's nobody there. Uh, But I'm hoping, too, that by bringing some recognition, you know, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's a commercial business. I'm selling this to stores, you know. And I think as picking up Americans and people who appreciate this stuff, that it gives some inspiration out there that this is something that you can work on that can help keep some of this nature going and not let these farms just go to seed. A 2009 law on strong alcoholic beverages delivered another blow to rakia production in Serbia. It implemented requirements that made production difficult for smaller producers. The number of registered producers went from about 2,000 that year to 320 just seven years later. In 2013, Serbia's biggest rakia producer, Navip, went bust after 84 years in business. Onako sam jer nemam s kim, pa sam se, evo malo i počastio. 
Jer moram da se mirim s tim Da sam bez tebe ostao Sećanja ubijam, al se setim Kako sam te slatko ljubio Pa izgubio Al nema te Nema takve ljute rakije Kao ljubav tvoja kad me opije I nema te Nema takve crne magije Pustu želju za tobom da ubije The Slovenian singer Magnifico dedicated a song on his new album Kafana Ljubljana out this year to the Balkan spirit. No rakia is as strong as your love when it gets me drunk. A broke drunkard walks into a pub. Barkeep, how much is one shot of rakia? One euro. And how much is one drop? Nothing, don't be stupid, says the bartender. Great, says the drunk. Give me a shot full of rakia drops. The end of the 1990s also saw the beginning of an ascendance of distilled spirits. 2023 is the first year distilled spirits overtook beer as the most popular alcoholic beverage in the US. The trend, itself part of a bigger craft-everything movement, came to the Balkans as well. Every September since 2002, the annual festival and competition of rakia, rakiada, has been held in Pranjani near Čačak, Serbia. The word itself plays on the Serbian word for the Olympics, Olympiada. The timing is auspicious during the harvest of plums. A vast majority of entries are by individual distillers. In my favorite category, Quince, where the winner was Ilya Krunic from Pančevo, the quality did not reach the gold level this year. A competing event ran from 2015 to 2022 in Bački Monoštor, a Vojvodinan village near Sombor. The Podunav Association for the Promotion of Eco and Rural Tourism held their event, Sofereje Rakiada, on the occasion of the Day of the Republic, Yugoslavia's birthday. Sofereje is of course the acronym for the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, but the event organizers turned it into 100 bottles of Rakia of Yugoslavia. Promotion materials prominently used the Yugoslav flag and a bust of Tito, both of which were present on site. Some of the products also featured Yugoslav imagery, and the Yugoslav anthem was sung and Yugoslav music played on the speakers. The underlying idea was that Rakia is the essence of brotherhood and unity, and that Rakia reunited Yugoslavia here. The joke was that Yugoslavs were all united in one idea, that the Rakia each of them made is the best. Speaking of Yugo-nostalgia, in 2008, Michia Velikonja observed it was possible to drink a toast with a Slovenian brandy called Marshal, as well as with Titova Rakia Medova, Tito's Honey Rakia. And in 2015, a Croatian entrepreneur made a Rakia simply named Tito for export to China. The international trade fair Spirit Fest Sarajevo was launched in 2012. This year's award for the best Šljovica went to Rubin. In 2016, the exhibition Making and Drinking Rakia at the Ethnographic Museum in Belgrade offered a comprehensive overview of practices and customs related to Rakia in Serbia. These were the precursors of Rakia's revival. At the time I decided to do this, the Balkans, in Serbia in particular, was going through this kind of like renaissance with the spirit. I mean, the timing, I didn't know that, uh, but I found out that uh, basically, you know, like most Eastern post-war places with the rebuilding, uh, state-managed economies built things to scale, 
you know, to bring back construction. Uh, they made food cheap and available to everybody. And, uh, you know, with Rakia, that meant, you know, mass producing inexpensive stuff, which became the norm. And the, the really good stuff that I had had that I got hooked on was stuff that people made at home and kept it at home. They didn't, they didn't sell it. In Serbia, about, I would say, maybe six years ago, this thing happened where this young generation started going through what happens in a lot of places. They wanted to kind of rediscover their traditions and, and, and they wanted to know what they were drinking. They wanted to know what the thing they had, where it came from, like the way you want to know where coffee comes from now. And um, there was a blog in Serbia called uh, Rakia Oglavnum that was getting into like going into the villages, going into places and sampling like artisanal rakia and evaluating it, coming up with criteria, finding out the plums that were used, getting taking it really seriously. It wasn't just a, a peasant farm spirit anymore. That was just the beginning of a movement. And I got into Serbia around that time and hooked up with my people. Rakia Uglavnom, Rakia mostly, was created to, quote, present Serbian rakia as a high-quality, urban and motivating product. The founders, Ilya Malovic and Zoran Radoman, were sick and tired of the portrayal of Rakia as a source of drunkenness and primitivism, so they made a site exploring and evaluating Rakia the same way wine is. Uh, a friend of mine who I knew, he told me about this tasting. We went together, and the guys who ran the Rakia Globnum blog were running it, and uh, they blew my mind. They blew my mind on Rakia. I had a very superficial kind of, I liked it. I liked it. I knew what I liked, but I didn't really know technically. I was just kind of a musician that loved drinking Rakia, right? I wanted to bring it here. Uh, they kind of like schooled me big time and they, they had me drinking some fake Rakia and they didn't tell me about it. And then they told me about it. <laughs> Just to test you. Made me feel like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that was a, that was like a mind blowing uh, night. And, and I got to know these guys and I met my producers at that event, that tasting event. And uh, that was really when I realized like, this is a real thing. Like these are serious people and we can do something really good. So it was the absolute best time to be doing something like this because it really kind of had a purpose to it. And then coming back to the States, my job, oddly enough, as an American is educating people who have been getting, you know, importing their spirits from the old world and telling them, look at some of the stuff is factory made. The stuff that you really want is the stuff made by hand, right? It's a really strange thing to be doing, but kind of cool, I'd say. I went out there in 2018. I think I imported my first pallet of Rakia into LA, Oakland, uh, 2019. And then the pandemic hit 2020 and that kind of, you know, how that goes. <laughs> I mean, you say decided to do it. You're making it just kind of sound sound easy. You know, I like this yeah. thing, so I decided <laughs> to was, do it. Yeah, it wasn't easy. I knew a guy who worked for a distributor in California and I went to his house. I'd known him since high school. And I just said, hey, man, just tell me why this is a stupid idea for a musician to get into this crazy business with the laws. And he's like, you have to do it. You have to do it. And I'll help you do it. I have an importing license and you can use mine to get something here in the first to see how it works. So I left his house like kind of like I kind of had to do it after that point, even though I didn't know what I was doing. There is nothing pretentious about brandy. It is not cognac. There is nothing elitist about it, Gold said in an interview in 2021. Then it was like, wow, the learning curve of, yeah, the laws. We have 50 states in this country, and every state has a different law with alcohol. Here I am. I'm an American guy bringing something that Americans don't know about. Meanwhile, there's guys like European stores, restaurants, and they're like, this weird American guy is here trying to sell me Rakia. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
It, it didn't. They were like, what, what the fuck is up with this guy? Who is this guy? Goldziebiga rakia is bottled on a farm in the mountains of Goc near Kraljevo. The Urošević family sell their rakia in Serbia under the brand Tok. In the Yugoslav times, father Urošević, Ljuba, worked at a large distillery and Tok is his retirement project. His kids grew up collecting plums at the family orchard. I mean, my guys are really ultra purists and it's all about not getting in the way of the fruit, you know, letting it express itself. So doing as minimal impact as possible. Um, our plums are grown up on a mountain uh, that's kind of high elevation that's surrounded by pine trees. So in my Rocky, you're going to taste a little bit of like pine oil, pine needle, mineral stuff from the mountain. It's got a little different characteristic to it. We have it bottled there on the farm. So our stuff's made on this farm in the middle of Serbia uh, in an area called Shumadia, which is known for plums and, and distillation. So, so uh, it's on a small farm on a mountain, you know, and, and the father who, who actually is a master distiller uh, who makes it, he does it completely no cheating. He's just like a real, real purist. I mean, I, I just can't think of better people to have who've met up with. And, and, and I've been going to the farm every time, you know, I go out there two times a year now. And um, I just feel like it's kind of like, I feel like I'm part of it with them. You know, they really brought me into their family. That's what's beautiful about rakia, just generally. One, not, you, you have different vari- variations or different varietals of the same fruit, and you have different regions, and then you have different fruits, and it's just this whole rich world that's kind of unexplored in terms of uh, the U.S. and Absolutely. the U.S. Uh, alcohol or U.S. spirits uh, spirits market. Okay. It's kind of like more like wine, right? Even you know, down the street, just a yeah, little bit of different yeah, yeah. process and a different land. You know, it can taste a little bit different. And uh, right. I mean, that's why you know. Right. Right. I mean, I can show you. You're not going to be able to hear it, but if okay. you look at this, uh-huh. like I have all these different rakias because they're oh, all beautiful. They're they're all different, you know. They're all different. Right, right. You are you are really a collector. I am into it, dude. I'm- <laughs> Talk is one of the prime rakia brands on the Serbian market, prime and rare. A study published earlier this year found that only four percent of Serbian distillers have fully mastered and deploy all facets of marketing. The study, conducted mid-pandemic, surveyed 104 distillers, only eight of whom distilled rakia professionally in a sanctioned registered distillery. 27 sold the product legally, and the rest of the samples sell their product in the grain market. This tracks with the estimate by Serbia's Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Water Management that 80% of the rakia market in Serbia is illegal, meaning producers don't pay any taxes or excise charges. Small-scale producers operate an estimated tens of thousands of pot stills in the country. There are 10 times as many unregistered distillers as there are official ones. With 50 to 60 million liters of rakia distilled annually in Serbia, that's a lot of quote-unquote illegal booze. Another conclusion in the study was that the fact that the rakia market is essentially unregulated and disorderly presents an obstacle to its growth and development. You can buy rakia from a friend who in turn may have it from their family or someone they know. I saw stickers that said rakia for sale on a phone number defacing buses in Belgrade. People sell rakia in green plastic bottles and no labels at markets or outside train stations or bus stations. There was a woman who I spoke to regularly on the market, Slavica, and she was selling uh, rakia on the market in these, uh, I don't know if you've seen them, but these plastic bottles with a red cup that uh, you can buy in any agricultural shop and they sell anything in it from rakia to defrosting liquids and other chemicals and so on. Yeah, these standard plastic bottles. Artist again. And she had them uh, on, the, on the market. She did not have any labels on it because she liked when people would ask her what is in it. So the conversation to her was very important. But it was a little bit under the table selling because it's legislated against. You cannot just uh, sell your homebrew rakia. Yet, 
every time that the police or some authority would come, they would just be reprimanded, her and other people in the market. And then for two weeks, they would keep the bottles under the table until everybody would forget about it again a little bit and they would put it out again. And nothing would ever really happen because she said it's a yavna taina. And a yavna taina means a public secret or a secret that is well known. And that <laughs> led to the story of uh, a mayor who uh, was brewing rakia for sale. But of course, because he had a quite high position, it was even more dodgy to do this kind of illegal stuff. So he had very nice labels printed. And under his name, it said Zapriatelje, which means for friends. So the entire label and the design of the label was suggesting that he was brewing it to give away to his friends. And we thought that was very funny story, sort of Yavna Taina, Zapriatelje, and so on, with which, even though things are not fully allowed, they exist in the public eye as secrets. Yavna Taina became the name for Vuksic and Volkova's art project. Back in Serbia, according to the Serbian distiller study, a typical small Serbian distillery intended for the production of rakia is that of a man in his 40s without a university degree. They have a small distillery with a capacity of 100 liters placed outside their house. They use their own fruit and most often distill plums. They work alone and distilling rakia is their hobby. Their main objective is to produce enough rakia for themselves and all visitors, but they also want to sell it. Even if they sell rakia, they do not settle their obligations to the state and compete unfairly with registered distilleries. End quote. Meanwhile, perhaps 800 registered distilleries operate in Serbia, but only a small number of brands are available on the market. Walk into any supermarket in Serbia and a lot, if not most of what you'll see will be industrial rakia made from ethanol with artificial flavors, not fruit. These will stand next to a handful of higher-end bottles. One of these will be Yugoslavia Heroes, whose label features a drawing of Tito's partisans against the backdrop of a giant red five-pointed star. Or try Stara Sokolova, established in the 1990s. I've seen this brand at one liquor store in Portland, Oregon, and the Two Brothers Grill and Rakia bar nearby features five of its products in its Rakia lineup. Anyway, Rakia isn't the most profitable of industries. The study identified a few causes of this, including inferior product and lack of branding and promotion, which leads to lower prices. In terms of product quality, most distillers in the study make rakia the way their grandfathers did, focusing on cost rather than the consumer, which leads to lower quality product and lower price. Only one in four surveyed distillers use scientific methods to make rakia and see better rakia sell at higher prices, as much as 60% over the fuddy-duddies. High-quality rakia is said to comprise less than 5% of production. Again, obsolete technology is the main culprit. The study also identified the failure to implement or in fact understand marketing as a cause for poor competitiveness of Serbian rakia. Quote, as a cultural icon, Serbian rakia is mentioned much more often in folk songs than in business plans. It seems that Serbian rakia distillers are unclear as to who they are targeting with their marketing, which target group the product is intended for, and who will buy it. In fact, the best-selling spirit in Serbia is not rakia, but Rubin's Vinyak. The Yugoslav-era company sells some 3 million liters of Vinyak every year. New commercial rakia producers most often claim family tradition as the source of their craft. In fact, a great part of the rakia revival is driven by younger generations of distillers discovering, reviving, and yes, capitalizing on their heritage. With their project Javna Taina, Public Secret, Vuksic and Volkova have traced some of this resurgent and its history. We looked at fermentation and distillation in a slightly more abstract sense, as a kind of ancient science. Uh, that goes back all the way into history across all of those shifts and schisms and, and changing ideologies and so on. And that had the potential of creating a kind of continuation that we can also use to look at the future through. 
And so we started experimenting with fermentation as this kind of first step, distillation. The fermenting yeasts are organisms which need some care and the right circumstances to live. And then they start this transformation and growing process on their own. So you very much feel immediately that they are alive. And since they are the first step to creating spirits, we then kind of looked into the double meaning of the word spirits, of spirits as in the alcoholic spirits, but also spirits as in the spirits of the ancestors that came before us and so on. Uh, resurrected kind of in this process of moonshine brewing, fermenting, distilling, and the ancient sciences. So that was a more magical uh, part of the uh, project. And then we got the opportunity to go to the common residency of artistic research and production in Orach, which is in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We quite quickly figured out that what we wanted to do there locally was really connect to other people who have this history, who have this knowledge, and to try to understand how this knowledge is passed on from generation to generation. Vuxić and Volkova interviewed locals and channeled their stories and performances, including a storytelling performance and a guided tour of a vineyard. The duo sought to answer the question, how did people learn to distill and do they still? Although for us the project came from an interest in, in, in bigger political questions and historical questions, once I was speaking to people, I actually asked them very simple questions. So how did you learn to distill? Who taught you? And it was funny because people looked at me a little bit puzzled. And initially that gave me the feeling that I was asking the wrong question. Um, but later I understood that this confusion perhaps about who taught you was exactly the point that... I was asking them questions which come from a much more schoolish system of sit down and I will teach you something. I will walk you through the steps. This is how you do it. But actually, they were never handed this kind of information. And it says a lot about the type of learning that happened. So people were just present as children. They were assisting. They were being, they were being handed ingredients or tools to hold, to fetch. Maybe they were being helpful. Maybe they were in the way. But in general, they were just bearing witness over this process until it became part of them. And so that made us wonder what, what happens to embodied knowledge in this context of mass emigrations. Uh, young people are leaving massively from ex-Yugoslavia, but also droughts are challenging the growth of fruit and so on. So there is this atmosphere of disappearance, of shrinkage. And it was actually something that people brought up in each conversation, regardless of how simple my questions were. They were very much bringing up the the shrinkage of villages, um, the climate. So there there is something happening right now where people are afraid that these practices might disappear. And something else that I learned, though, that I did not expect was uh, that apparently more people started uh, brewing rakia after the war. And uh, there was one woman, Slavica, who brought this up first. She was saying that she never wanted to do it. She never wanted to work on the land. Her parents did, and it was very hard work, and she had other plans for herself. And her father always told her that you have to learn. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever job you want or no job. It doesn't matter, but you have to learn, and then you can do what you want. And so she went on to work in completely other fields and so on, and in the war, she lost her job. And uh, out of despair actually of not really knowing what to do next she she did start growing her own vegetables her own fruit rakia is often a byproduct of that so she started making that as well because she remembered of what she learned 
And now she sells rakia and then she started also finding some joy in it. So instead of doing the rakia that her father was doing, she now goes into the mountain to find mountain herbs to make various like medicinal travaritsas out of it and so on. But she was one of many people who who kind of showed that, you know, in a crisis, sometimes the craft comes back, the tradition comes back out of necessity. And in the same time, at this moment in time, it might be slowly disappearing. And this is what people fear. It just happens that both my father and my grandfather, they distilled their own drinks. And uh, they, in the past few years, started having this at family gatherings, this moment when they basically show off their produce and then they do the tasting and then other family members are commenting on what they like the most and so on. And so the history here is very different from the one in Balkans. To me, it always felt like uh, the story of Rakia comes kind of the from this fruitful point, the climate is nicer, there are all these different fruits growing and so on. And then when you think about Russia vodka or the traditions of moonshine, it always uh, out of uh, scarcity and deficit and maybe things being forbidden and prohibited. Rakia might be disappearing or is in many ways disappearing from the land because of uh, depopulation, uh, migration, uh, aging, uh, and so forth, uh, urbanization. In your booklet, you mention uh, someone saying that there are more people in my village distilling Rakia than uh, drinking it, uh, because it's just simply how that how that village has been depopulated. And so, uh, is there hope for Rakia? Is there hope for these lands uh, and this ancient, ancient craft uh, that's been around for hundreds of years? I actually also met uh, two teenagers who uh, learned how to brew and are very adamant on um, continuing to do that and keeping the tradition of their family. And it's also the family business. So, But what I found interesting in them is that they, they had no nostalgic um, narrative around that. It was very much a necessity that they said people will come back and they will want to know where they are from and this is rooted in the land. So it was really interesting to hear such young people uh, say that actually, you know, they are continuing this knowledge, but they also feel that that it is a human necessity somehow to understand what you are connected to. And uh, it was Baba Olga who said uh, that more more people brew rakia than uh, drink it. So that is the rakia that I have here now. Uh, she was also saying, um, from the city and the grave, one doesn't return. So I thought that was just a very beautiful, uh, beautiful saying. I also uh, had some drinks with uh, with a pensioned couple who uh, was had also had this typical story that they used to brew, but now they don't anymore because they they live in a city and they have a balcony and no yard anymore and so on. And um, the men cheersed with better that the village dies than the customs. And so there was this idea that the custom can survive even if the village is not there anymore and that this is something that is living in the memory of people themselves. So even if they don't know how to brew anymore or they don't have a yard to grow the fruits anymore and they have to buy it and so on, that still we are connected to these memories and to these customs. The language of uh, fermentation and distillation specifically is very rich of this double entendres where you have 
culture, which is human culture, but you also have this yeast cultures that are doing something. The ideas and are brewing as is the alcohol. Uh, you distill the alcohol and the meaning out of something. I, I think we, we are doing such a traditional um, and almost nostalgic uh, project. And we reflect on that a lot. I mean, also on what nostalgia is in itself and whether or not we have to hold on to the past or so on. I think it's really important for for these traditions to stay alive. And in the same time, I personally w- would like to see them have a chance also to to adapt, to change. Yeah, keep Rakia alive, I say to that. <laughs> <laughs> Hear more secrets, public and otherwise, from Vuksic and Volkova in the extended episode. Rakia's revival extends beyond the Balkans through the diaspora. In Sydney, Australia, two cousins of Macedonian origin, both of whom are less than 30 years old, started DNA Distillery during the pandemic. They focus on grape Rakia. Co-founder James Projewski told Special Broadcasting Service that the duo wanted to learn a traditional skill and learn about our culture and family in order to authentically move the tradition of making rakia forward in Australia. Co-founder Monique Sutevsky said, Rakia has been made by our family for five generations, and now it's our turn to bottle the magic and the legacy that comes with it. Sutevsky also added that Rakia is very much an emblem of that cultural identity and togetherness that stands for love, joy and compassion. Despite the fact that there are so many different cultural groups in the Balkans, Rakia is a tie that binds us all together. Rakia connecting people indeed. The international competition of Rakia culminated in 2022 when social practices and knowledge related to the preparation and use of the traditional plum spirit Shlioitsa were inscribed on the UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. The UNESCO World Heritage status gave Rakia a good boost. Tourism makes great use of Rakia in Serbia. You can have a flight of Rakia before you even land in Belgrade on Air Serbia. Many traditional tours include shots of Rakia as part of the story. Specialty tours are also a thing. For example, the company Still in Belgrade Tours offers a Rakia tour, which for 35 euros includes a two-hour guided walk through Dorcho, a Rakia shot at a bar, finger foods, and a distillery tour with more shots and sales. A number of distillers around Serbia offer tours and tastings. The distillery in Vrčin, southeast of Belgrade, which has been making Bojkovčanka Rakia since 1985 and is possibly the first legal distillery in Serbia, has been operating the Rakia Museum since 2016. The museum boasts over 700 exhibits, including the world's biggest bottle of Rakia, a two-meter hand-blown behemoth. The Rakia bar in Belgrade has been around since 2006. Its menu boasts some 150 Rakias. Rakia has made it to Schwag. On the personalized products marketplace Spreadshirt, the Yugo Gear store carries products emblazoned with their Rakia drinking team design, a traditional flat Serbian Rakia bottle in lieu of the flames on the coat of arms of socialist Yugoslavia. Other shops' designs include Keep Calm, Drink Rakia, But First, Rakia, Keep the Whiskey, Give Me the Rakia, Rakia is Love, and All I Need is Suvo Meso and Rakia, Suvo Meso being dried meat. But perhaps the most famous slogan, which went truly viral a few years ago when Lady Gaga was photographed wearing it on a t-shirt, is Fuck the coca, fuck the pizza, all we need is Shlivovica. Rakia became quite a thing during the pandemic. In 2022, the Alcohol Professor blog asked, could the Balkan spirit Rakia be the next big thing in brandy? Last spring, the Daily Beast asked, is this rustic southern European booze the next mezcal? Another sign of Rakia's ascendance, the spirit is also making it into cocktails now. Fancier bars in Belgrade routinely mix cocktails featuring rakia. Abroad, Ambar in Washington, D.C. has Quince Up, featuring Quince Rakia with apple and lemon juices, simple syrup, and rhubarb bitters. Yebiga includes a number of recipes on their website. 
DNA Distillery in Sydney also promotes cocktails, including the Macedonian Mule, which comprises rakia, lime juice, ginger beer, and fresh mint, and which is, quote, sweet and spicy like Uncle Sasho's first wife. Dubioza Collective released some of their work on Gould's Cool Arrow label. Like Culture Shock, they now release their work on their own. Buy their music. And Rakia. Their own Maxuzia Rakia is a plum brandy with the slogan, Rakia, disinfecting people. The first time I had the Ebiga Rakia was the bottle I bought in a liquor store in Fortuna, California, which was for me on the way between Oregon and the Avenue of the Giants. Middle of nowhere town, little reason to stop. Except the map on the Ebiga Rakia's website showed it as the nearest place I could get a bottle. Anybody, I recommend looking for tuna up on the map. Just, you know, we're talking about, yeah, there's nothing around there. And I was getting these distributor reports and like Fortuna, this market in Fortuna kept ordering some. I had no idea why, how they even knew about it or anything. We switched distributors and I was contacting all the places that were ordering it to let them know we had a new distributor. And I called up that market and talked to the manager and he's like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we're not ordering as much as we did, but yeah, there were these Bulgarian guys who were living up here in the mountains and they were growing weed. <laughs> and they were coming down from the mountain and they were buying it all the time. Yeah, we were selling lots of it to That's them. Great. <laughs> and then they left the business and that was that for uh, everybody. Exactly, yeah. 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 
So Bill Gold <laughs> of Faith No More is going around selling the, the beverage in the liquor stores and whatever. So that must be a shock to people who recognize you or know your name. Uh, how's that going? <laughs> It's pretty weird. Uh, it's kind of cool. I mean, I've met a lot of really amazing people that I wouldn't have met. Uh, it's kind of like going on tour without having to play music. Uh, but, you know, it's also people who like to eat and drink a lot, which I would have done this 20, 30 years ago. I would be having the time of my life, but I just turned 60 this year and it's it's a workout. But I found myself like I was in St. Louis uh, in Missouri about a month ago and I was in a gas station liquor store talking to an Indian guy, you know, trying to get him to carry some bottles. And I was just like, caught myself like, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> yeah, but it was cool too. I mean, because this thing actually got me here, you know, it's, it's taking me to cool. And to be honest with you, the guy that I was talking to knew a lot about spirits. Like he was a really interesting guy. So Actually, I take I took it on the good way. Like it's pretty bizarre. My friends might not understand it, but I, I'm kind of digging it. Generally speaking, when you introduce it to not just the uh, liquor store owners, but customers, potential customers, how how does that go? How, what's the response? What do people say? Uh, what are some of the preconceived notions that you help uh, dispel for them? Well, Schlievavitsa, as Schlievavitz, uh has been around here for a while. It's got really negative connotations with, with, with bar people, American bar people, like, oh, that stuff's firewater, you know? Oh, God, yo, yeah, my grandmother, you know, had that at her house, you know? We used to have to drink that stuff. So I've got to kind of go, this is not that Schlievovitz. This is uh, this is what it, your grandmother got. This is what she really wanted to get, was this. Um, so there's a little bit of that. And there's enough where nobody has any ideas. And like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with it. You know, I could put it on my show, but nobody's going to ask for it. Nobody's going to buy it. But talking younger generation, I think that people get sick of being mass marketed a million tequilas and a million gins. You know, it's a huge industry with lots of money. It's a, I mean, this is a big economy here and it's a massive, massive, massive industry. And there's something refreshing about something that's handmade for real. Uh, I mean, there's all these fake stories about whiskeys, you know, you know, made in a still in a Kentucky farm and it's all bullshit. You know, it's all manufactured and everybody knows it's bullshit, but they want to believe the lie, you know. And it's like there's some, there's something about this, uh, it, the people I'm con contacting with, that like this is actually a real thing made by real people, you know. So it, it's, it's OK. I, I'm very optimistic, actually. Ibigarakia is available in the US in two ways, online, whereas of this episode's release you can get it in time for Orthodox Christmas, and in bars and stores in 10 states now, with Washington being the latest. Gold is working to add more. I mean, every single state is a process. And I mean, think about it like this, you know, like, to use Colorado as an example. We're not in Colorado, but like, I'm going to write a letter. Hi, hello, my name is Bill. I played in the band Faith No More. And I am importing this spirit from Serbia, you know, to a guy who's running like a liquor distribution who's never heard of Rocky before. You know, they're just like, what the fuck is this stuff? Maybe he's heard of Faith No More, though. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, I use that. But I mean, I'm saying you have a cold call. It takes time, you know. Yeah, you know, those guys have to run a business. And But, you know, at the same time, uh, it's, it's, it's complicated as, as like being in a band. You know, I think about when you used to make records and tour. 
you know, there's the cool record stores that wanted to check out your record. I mean, Faith No More was a weird band. We were really out of left field from where we came from. And, uh, but we made the connections and found those people, you know, and, and it made it more special. This is kind of similar to that. Evangelizing for this uh, strange, uh, strange thing that people don't know much about. There's so much depth. There's so much to learn. There's so many different places that, uh, it just keeps you coming back. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, embeds, links to purchase all the music you've heard, a list of sources, and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. Hear more stories and interviews with Vukšić, Volkova, and Gold in the extended episode. Navigate to rememberingyugoslavia.com donate and get access to more Rakia today. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric, additional music courtesy of Dario, Dubioza Collective, Luboina, Magnifico, Peja Vujic, and Sars. Buy their music. All the links are at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. The track Balkana by Abstracker licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Lindsay Sove. I am Peter Korchniak. Ciao! Živjeli! 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 <laughs>